Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. We're in a unique season right now uh, as a church. Just finished up the book of Proverbs, and um, we're kind of entering a unique season um, as a church family on the hills of God's provision uh, over the last few years. Um, just to kind of um, update you on a couple of things, if you're new with us, we're deep into building plans for a new sanctuary. We are past the 90% phase, trying to get things closed out so we can move to permitting in the very near future. And if the Lord so wills, we hope to move from design to permit to build all in the next few months. So it's an exciting time, but a lot goes into that. So unique season for us. We're also in the process of reestablishing our children's ministry, as many of you know just filling the children's minister position in the last couple of weeks. New position, uh, big meeting next week, as you see there in your bulletin, for people wanting to be involved in that with a big launch planned for January as the children's ministry refocuses. We're also in the process of looking for another staff member. We're in the middle of a worship uh, minister search now, worship director. In the midst of all that, we're approaching the holiday season with all the guest and evangelistic opportunities that presents uh, and also with a new year, and as you always begin to refocus and reset as the new year comes. And we're also in the season where we nominate and elect people that serve in the church, so deacons, other committee members, things like that. As you know, today is the last day um, to offer a nomination for the office of deacon. So if you've got someone you want to nominate, um, you need to get that into the offering plate today or present that to myself or to one of our deacons um, or nominating team members um, Dave Madison's not here today, so I would point you towards Mike Arnold, our chairman of the deacons, and he can get that to me, or just put it in the offering plate. Uh, today is the final day for that if you want to nominate somebody. And our nominating team is beginning to work to fill positions for 2018 and beyond for important committees like finance and personnel and all, and all the different things, properties and all the different things we do here. So a lot going on during this time, and maybe your life kind of feels like that as well. Maybe you have your own list. Um, that as we enter this last quarter, um, I've begun this last quarter of 2017, maybe you have a list of all these things that are going on, things that you're juggling, and um, things where you need wisdom and guidance, help, strength, mercy, whatever it may be. And so today I want to encourage us to prayer. Sounds simple, but prayer is such an easily neglected part of the Christian life, yet without it, we simply can't survive. Yet at the same time, it's one of the things where the, it's the first thing many times that gets neglected in our life when things get busy. And I'm convinced the Christian life is to be lived in prayer and that Christian ministry is to be administered in prayer and that God-pleasing goals in our life and in our church can only be accomplished in prayer. God's just designed it that way. It's just the breathing of the Christian life. And if you don't breathe, you, you don't do very well. And if you don't pray, we don't do very well in the Christian life. And in Luke chapter 11... The disciples who have spent all this time with Jesus, who they saw Jesus raise the dead, heal the sick, do all kinds, turn water into wine, do all kinds of amazing things. They ask Jesus an amazing question in Luke chapter 11. They ask him to teach them, or that request, I should say, him to teach them to pray. So imagine the prayer life they had witnessed from Jesus over the course of the time they had spent with him. Maybe you've been around people like that before. You've heard them pray, and you think, man, I want to learn to pray like that. I can imagine what it was like hearing Jesus pray. So in Luke chapter 11, Jesus, Luke gives us his account of Jesus teaching them to pray. So look with me in Luke chapter 11, very familiar passage. Luke chapter 11, we're going to read verses 1 through 13. Luke chapter 11, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, 
Teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, give us each day your daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you has a friend who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So here's one of the most incredible things about the Christian life, and that is that God invites us to pray and invites us to pray like this. It is through prayer that we get to participate in God's plan in our lives and in the world in his church. God's chosen to allow us to participate in what he's doing all over the world and in the lives of other people through this vehicle of prayer. In fact, I believe there are some things that God simply will not do unless we ask him to. Jesus said, or the word says, you have not because you ask not. So that must mean that there are some things that we do not see happen simply because we have not prayed and asked God to do it. God has chosen in his sovereign plan to weave prayer into his purposes for, that he wants to accomplish. And there are some things that God is just committed to doing through the prayer lives of his people. So, we need to pray. Jesus says we need to pray, and Jesus teaches us here how to pray. Now, I want to give you four principles here for powerful prayer for us to kind of cling and hang on to. Good things for us to remember in this season, because at the end here, I'm going to call on us as a church to pray for our church. And also, there's going to be things in your life that you're going to need to pray for. Here's four principles from this passage. Number one, Jesus wants us to be dependent. To be dependent. Jesus displayed this, right? He was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples says, Lord, teach us to pray. Why? Because it was the regular habit of Jesus to pray. He, he displayed for us what it looks like to be dependent on the Father. He modeled it for us. The groundbreaking element of this prayer is that Jesus tells the disciples, now when you pray, you say, Father. And then he goes. And the first time they heard that, I don't know if they heard everything else after that. Everything else was kind of like the, the, the whipped cream on top. That was, that was the big bowl of ice cream, Father. We're supposed to pray and say, Father, that, that was groundbreaking in Jesus' day that he would encourage them to call God and to call on God as Father. This conveys a unique relationship. If you're a believer in Christ, Jesus is inviting you to call God your Father, and that conveys intimacy and it conveys reverence. It conveys intimacy 
because it's a familial relationship. He's same word, it's the word Abba. It's the same word that children would use to call their daddies in that day, but it's also the same word that an adult would use. So it's not quite exact. Sometimes people will say that's just like our word daddy today. Not exactly like our word daddy. Um, maybe with a little more reverence than that word, but at the same time, it does express that, that intimacy, but also with reverence, because he says in, in many of the passages, Father in heaven. So it's, it's, it's intimacy, but reverence, because he is God. And we can only call him Father, right, if he is our Father. And he's not everybody's Father. He's the Father of all creation, but spiritually speaking, we know Jesus taught He's only the father of those spiritually who have trusted in Jesus. And so if you've ever repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus, then God is your spiritual father. If you haven't repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus, you stand outside of faith in Christ and God wants to be your spiritual father. He longs for you to repent and believe the gospel. Once we do that, we become a part of the family of God and God invites us to not simply pray to him as some figment of our imagination, or just some being in the sky, but as our Father. Now, don't miss this. In all that intimacy and in all that reverence, one big thing is also being conveyed, and that is the idea of dependence. Dependence. The whole prayer shows God as the one in control, the one who is sovereign, the one who is providing and forgiving. He's God. He's the Father. We are children. We are His creation. This means we're loved, it means we're highly valued, but it also means we're dependent on him for everything. We're the ones praying. We're the ones making requests. Only God gives commands. We're the ones seeking his kingdom and not our own. It's his name that we want to be kept holy, not ours. The whole prayer is Godward. It's a prayer of dependence. We are dependent on God like a helpless baby before a parent. In our house, we're getting ready for baby number three to be here any day now. And I've got to learn how to swaddle again, right? I've got to learn how to, to, to sleep while the baby cries again. And I'm just kidding. But we have, to, we have to relearn all these things. It's just been a couple of years, but it's amazing how quickly you begin to forget. And that little baby, I do remember this, how just dependent they are, right? They need you to feed them and to change them. He doesn't come into the world with a plan B, right? Uh, mommy and daddy is, is all he's got. And there's nothing like as they get a little older and they get to where they can kind of hold their arms up, right? One of the first moves they make when they're sitting in that crib is they stretch out their arms, right? Because they, all they know is dependence. All they know is, is need. And Jesus is saying, listen, when you go to God in prayer, you need to remember that he's your father, that you're utterly dependent on him. So when you need provision, you ask him. When you need forgiveness, you ask him. When you need protection from temptation, you ask him. You, you stretch out your arms to him. It's a position of dependence. Father is not just a word we call God. It's a reminder of how utterly dependent we are on God. Unless God provides, we won't have. Unless God forgives, there is no pardon. Unless God protects, we won't be protected. We are dependent on him to provide, to forgive, to protect. Notice how much of the Lord's Prayer is chiefly answered in Jesus, who is ultimately all we need in God's provision is the only way we can be forgiven. And he is the one who leads us out of temptation and gives us victory over temptation. See, we are desperate for God's help. There's no fallback plan. There's no second best option. It's God answers or nothing. So our prayers are to be bathed in an utter dependency on God. There's a hint of desperation that should be there. 
So, number one, be dependent. Now, look at verse 5 down through verse 13. Jesus tells a story. He presents a scenario. He wants us to see this parable through the eyes of a needy person. Which of you, he says, has a friend, will go to him, right? We're the one in need making a request. Jesus is not saying God is like a grumpy neighbor that doesn't want you to awaken him. It's a contrast. He's not comparing God to, he's contrasting God with. He's saying God is not like that. That's the point of the story. The point of the story is not God's like that grumpy neighbor and if you bug him enough, he'll do whatever you want. The point of the story is God is nothing like that neighbor. But even that neighbor, right, will honor the request because of the shameless, boldless, persistent requesting of the person. How much more will your heavenly father, who loves and adores you, how much more does he want to answer your prayers? So here's the scene. The person goes at midnight looking for something very simple, three loaves of bread. Now why in the world would you wake someone up at midnight for three pieces of bread? Well, they're inconveniencing their friend because they have been inconvenienced by another friend. They are passing on the love, so to speak. Somebody has come to them. They are having to host someone is most likely the scenario. And in their day, hospitality was a huge part of the cultural fabric. So you wanted to be hospitable and welcoming at all times. In their day, many people had one-room homes. So everything is in one room. People are sleeping on mats on the floor. So if he gets up and unbolts the door and digs out some bread, everybody's going to be awake now. They're in this one room, one big bedded down area, maybe in the center or in the corner of the room. Now from the point of the view of the one asking, he is in a tough spot because culturally he wants to be a good host, which means providing some food, which he doesn't have. But he doesn't want to be a bad neighbor but he's more willing to be a bad neighbor than a bad host. Jesus then explains, being this guy's friend is not going to get this guy guy out of bed, but rather the guy's impudence. Now, what does that word mean? We don't use that word. Some translations don't use that word. In its purest sense, it means shamelessness. Shamelessness. I think it's the Christian Standard Bible that translates it uh, shameless boldness, uh, which is a very good translation of that. It's at times translated boldness. Sometimes it's translated persistence. It really kind of conveys all of this. And so that's where the rest of our thoughts are going to come from this morning. So the second thing that we're going to learn is that we need to be confident or be bold in our prayers. Be confident. This is the idea of this shamelessness. The idea of shameless immodesty is a pure translation. It's nerve or gall. You You see this in the fact that the guy goes at midnight. He goes at midnight. To ask for bread, right? It's not an emergency. It's not an emergency. It requires nerve. It requires a boldness. It requires doing something that seems a little culturally inappropriate. But Jesus is inviting us here to pray boldly and shamelessly to God. In other words, we can come with confidence. We can come with boldness because we don't have to be afraid of waking God up. God's not asleep. God's never asleep at the wheel. Remember, this is a contrast. God's not like the neighbor. He's different. He's never neglecting us. He's never asleep at the wheel. God's always awake, always in control, always attentive. He doesn't grow weary. We grow weary. We need sleep. God doesn't need sleep. He's not like us, and he's not like this neighbor. God's never reluctant or annoyed by our praying. The guy in the story we see is bothered by this request. He's annoyed. God's never bothered. God invites us to come to him at midnight or any other time. 
There is no thing that we can bring before God that is too insignificant because God is good. And there is no thing we can bring before God that is too great because God is greater. And Jesus is saying confidently and boldly bring your request to God because you don't knock on the door of a moody neighbor. You knock on the door of your heavenly father. The writer of Hebrews encourages this as well. Let me read to you from Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4.16 says this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, just before this in Hebrews, the writer has told us that in Jesus, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. He has walked in our shoes yet without sin. And because we have Jesus, we can go before the throne of grace with confidence is what he's saying here. And that word there that he uses in Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near, can also be translated boldness or courage. And it's the idea of speaking freely with God, that we can tell him everything. That yes, we go reverently, but we go openly. We go boldly, bringing everything before him. It's the idea of completely unloading your heart before God. See, the gospel is what makes this kind of confidence possible. Because we're not just praying to some fairy in the sky. We're praying to God the Father who sent his son to bleed and die on a cross to redeem us from our sin. Who has risen him from the dead. And if you believe in him, that same resurrection power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in you. He's given you his very spirit to seal you to the day of redemption. That's who you pray to. And the gospel gives us confidence when we go before God that he's not bothered or moody or disturbed, but that he wants us to come to him and seek his mercy and seek his grace in our time of need. We're to bear our heart before him, to unload before him, to talk to him, to be open with him. My son Cannon, who's four now, has hit an age where car rides with him are many times an endless round of questions and comments. Daddy, why? Daddy, can I ask you something? Daddy, let me tell you something. Daddy, do you remember when? And the kid's got a memory like you wouldn't believe. He'll bring up something from like two years ago. I'm like, no, I don't remember that. But he does, right? Endless questions, endless comments. Doesn't think anything about it. He boldly, confidently pours his little heart out with questions and comments. And when I give him an answer, he assumes it's the truth. And the idea is this. We can pour our heart out before God not worrying about if we're annoying him. He invites it. You can talk to God with confidence and boldness, knowing that he is your heavenly father in Christ. So go with confidence and boldness, not rooted in your personality, not rooted in your likability, not rooted in how well you've spiritually performed this week, but rooted in the character and nature of God. That's who the confidence is rooted in, not in ourselves, but in him. A great example of this type of prayer is found in Abraham. In Genesis 18, God is about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. You're a very familiar story in the Old Testament. He's about to rain down wrath, basically, on that immoral city. And Abraham asked the Lord this in Genesis 18. The men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said to God, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? This goes on for a while. Abraham goes on to ask, will you do this for 40? Will you do it for 30? 
For 20, for 10, he just keeps pressing God, keeps asking. That's boldness. What's his boldness rooted in? In the confidence of who God is and what kind of God is. It's, it's not in Abraham. It's not because Abraham is arrogant. It's because he's confident of the very nature of God and that God is a forgiving and merciful God. He knows God is just and holy and a God of wrath, but he also knows God is a loving and compassionate and faithful and forgiving God. So he presses in on God with confidence, with boldness, because of the very nature of who God is. So be dependent, but be confident. Number three, be persistent. Be persistent. The guy is bold to come at midnight for such a small thing, but he's persistent. Jesus goes on to definitely show the need for persistence here. He says, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. See the persistence there? Asking, seeking, knocking. The use of all three terms, the seeming progression here, conveys the idea of persistence. It literally can be translated this way from the Greek. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. It goes with what Jesus goes on to say in Luke 18. In Luke 18, 1, tells us that Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And then he gives them a story of a judge and a widow who comes to an unjust judge and asks him for justice, even though Jesus said he didn't fear God or respect man. The judge didn't. And finally, the judge gives in because he's bothered by the woman, because she just keeps asking. And Jesus' point, once again, is not to compare God to an unjust judge. His point is that if that judge honored persistence, how much more our just and holy Father honors persistence? The point is to pray, as Luke 18, 1 says, and not lose heart. It's to invite us to persistence. God invited this kind of prayer in the Old Testament as well. Let me read to you from Isaiah 62. Isaiah 62, 6 and 7 says, On your walls, O Jerusalem, God says, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night, and they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes its praise in the earth. What's he say? Do not give God rest in the way you pray, in the way you beseech heaven. Do not give God rest. Keep coming, keep asking, keep praying. The Apostle Paul referred to this as praying without ceasing. The idea is that God wants us to come boldly and then to keep coming and to keep asking and to keep bringing things before him. This is not talking about the monotonous repetition of trying to wear God down that Jesus condemned in Matthew. This is not thinking you'll be heard for your many words. This is not trying to manipulate God with some sort of special formula or words. This is pleading with God, seeking an answer, and claiming and holding to his promises, and wanting to know what his will is, and being okay with whatever the answer is. God answers prayer in one of three ways. Yes, no, later. Right? Yes, no, later. So what is... He says, so ask, so seek, so not, so persevere, because sometimes God is saying later. He's not saying no. Asking doesn't require anything of you, but opening our mouths and praying. Seeking seems to be a little stronger word. It means to reach for something. We're told in the Old Testament to seek or pursue God, and that conveys the idea of doing his will and obedience. 
Our eyes are open. We're looking for the answer to God's prayer. We're not just making a request. We're, we're seeking the answer, willing to obey, seeking to obey God in everything that is revealed to us. And we're knocking. This is where we must persevere. We're, asked, we're, we're asking, we're seeking, and then we just come back and we knock on the door until it gets open. But we've got to beware, beware of asking without seeking. See, prayer is not an excuse to disobedience. It's not a lazy man's crutch. So if we're praying for God to help us with our finances, we shouldn't spend irresponsibly and then blame God for our financial woes. If we're praying for a job, we need to put together a resume. If we're praying for a wife, we need to learn to say hello, right? I mean, there's just basics. If we're praying for victory in an area, for help in an area, if we need counseling, we should get counseling. If we need accountability, we should get accountability. Prayer is not an excuse to not make wise decisions. That's part of the seeking. And Jesus invites our persistence. He invites persevering prayer and he expects it. I love this quote from Matthew Henry on this passage. He says, we prevail with men by importunity. That's another word for impudence, that shameless boldness, persistence, because they are displeased with it. He says, but we prevail with God because he is pleased with it. And that's the difference in God, the Father, and the moody neighbor. The fourth thing, the fourth thing, we need to be dependent. We need to be confident. We need to be persistent. And the fourth thing is our prayers need to be expectant. Jesus says, if you ask, you receive. You seek, you find. You knock, and it's, it's opened. Does this mean we can pray for anything and always get a yes? Well, no. Remember, this is in the context of the model prayer. The model prayer was we're seeking God's will. We're seeking his name to be hallowed. We're, we're seeking his kingdom to come. But don't miss this. Jesus is saying that we should pray with an expectant heart. That we can know when we pray, as he tells us, to pray that, 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 that we will receive, that we will find, and the door will be opened. So we should pray with that kind of expectation. The expectation is that God will answer and do whatever is best for his children. He may not give us the answer that we're asking for, but in the end, ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, we have to trust that whatever his answer is, it was better. It was better. And we may not even understand it this side of eternity. But that's where faith comes in. It's back to the father-child relationships that we begin with in this part of the passage. In verse 11, he says, What father among you? If your kid asks for a fish, gives him a serpent. If he asks for an egg, gives him a scorpion. In their day, these were things that looked alike. A fish and a serpent, right? Neither have legs, both have that scaly skin. So to a small child, they seem similar. A, a scorpion balled up could look like an egg. And Jesus' point is that if your kid asks you for something that he needs, you aren't going to mock him or trick him by making him think you're giving him what he's asking for when actually you're giving him something that could harm him to, let's say, teach him a lesson. He said, no, you're not going to do that to your child. Your kid expects and assumes that you're going to do whatever, whatever is best. Eden's favorite game in the swimming pool is Tinkerbell. Tinkerbell consists of me tossing her into the air and catching her before she hits the water as she screams out loud, Tinkerbell. <laughs> it's as close to this thing as she gets to flying, right? Now, Cannon's different. He doesn't trust me that way. He refers to me as Tricky Daddy. <laughs> I think I might have given myself that nickname. I'm a little different with Cannon, right? Uh, he's four, so I don't always necessarily catch him the same. But we have to be aware of a distorted view of God that somehow thinks that he is 
playing a trick on us. That he is going to throw something out there and bait us and then at the last minute pull those switcheroo and see, see, I taught you a lesson. It's not what God's doing. He's wanting, he's, he's not wanting you to get close to him just so he can pay you back for something you did in the past. Don't believe that lie. Jesus says in verse 13, if you then who are evil, see that's how we think, because <laughs> we're evil, God's not. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts, he says, listen, if you know how to treat your kids, don't you think God knows even better how to treat his kids? If you think you're a pretty good mom or dad and a loving mom or dad, how much more so do you think God is a loving dad, a loving father? So back to the persistent point. Why would God want us to persist? Why would he make us wait? Why would he ever say later and make us continue to ask and seek and knock? Jesus gives one clear answer and only one in this text. Because God does what is good and best. As John Popper notes, there must be something about persisting in prayer that's good for us, that's best for us. And a very good reason that God would want us to wait. And it's, for one, prayer brings us closer to God. Prayer changes us. We don't change God when we pray. God changes us. Right? You remember the story? Jacob wrestling with God. God didn't walk away with the limp. Jacob did. What we're asking for may be a snake. And God might be trying to protect us. Look back on your life and think about some of the things that you've prayed for that you're glad God didn't answer them the exact way you wanted him to. So when we come to God, we don't come dreading the answer. We come expecting to receive, to find, to have open for us what is good and best in God's timing, whatever that may be. In Matthew 7, Jesus teaches this and says the heavenly Father gives good things. Here, though, he, Luke gives it a little different answer. He says, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So one passage, Jesus says, gives good things. In another passage, Jesus says, he gives the Holy Spirit. Here's the point. God gives what is good, but God also gives what is best. We go to God seeking the gift. God gives the giver. We look for supply, and he gives the supplier. We pray for comfort. God gives us the comforter. We pray for wisdom and direction. He gives us his very spirit to lead us and guide us. At conversion, the Holy Spirit came to dwell in us, and he's now at work in us. If you're a believer this morning, and we're to yield our life to him, and we're indwelled by him, and we need to be filled with and controlled by him. God has given us more than we could ever ask for. God gives what's good to his children, but he also gives what's best. And there's absolutely nothing better for our lives than the work and activity of the Holy Spirit actively present and at work in your life and my life. You say, I need help understanding the Bible. The Holy Spirit is the teacher, according to John 14, 26. I need help loving someone or being patient with someone or being kind to someone. You know, that's all fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. I need boldness to share my faith. Well, the Spirit makes us his witnesses, according to Acts 1.8. You say, well, I just need help. Well, according to John 16, 7 and 8, the Holy Spirit is the helper. See, God has given you, in the, in the gift that is the Holy Spirit, the answer to a whole lot of our prayers. Do you realize the joy and peace in all circumstances, the boldness, the freedom that is ours by the power of the Holy Spirit? 
Something if you're a believer that you've already been given. So why would we not call out to and make requests to and knock on the door of heaven to a God like that? So I want to invite us as a church to seek God during this season here at North Park, every season. But there's four ways that you can pray for the church right now. Number one, pray for wisdom as we, of course, select committee members and deacons during this time, time of year, as we continue in the planning and process for a new worship space, as we prepare to launch a new children's ministry. Pray that we'd have wisdom, that we'd make wise decisions. Number two, pray for funding. We do not have all that we need to build the building that we believe that we need to build to help better reach people here in Baldwin Park and beyond. And God is well aware of what we have and what we don't have. And he's fully capable of funding the project however he sees fit. He certainly paid off the last building in a way that we never would have imagined. So pray. Pray that God would fund this as he sees fit, and that we would be wise and would be good stewards, but that we would understand that he's the provider. Number three, pray for favor. As we seek to better connect with young families in Baldwin Park and beyond, pray that God will give us favor to reach out and connect with them, to be good neighbors. And number four, pray for multiplication. Pray that God would multiply this church, that we would be faithful to live on mission, sharing our faith, making disciples, being who Jesus placed us here to be, and that we would just take what we have, like the little boy with the bread and the story of the loaves and the fishes, and we would just give Jesus what we have and trust him to multiply it. But how about you? Are there areas where in your life you need wisdom and direction right now? Places you long to see God move? Places that you feel like you're dry or places where you feel distant from God? God invites you to go to him this morning, to be dependent, that you are his child in Christ and if, if you're to be who God has designed you to be, the first step is dependence on him. To be confident. We can have confidence that God wants what's best for us and for his church. We're not waking an angry neighbor. We're beseeching a loving father. So pray boldly and confidently. Be persistent. We don't need a mere season of prayer. We need to be a people of prayer. A church of prayer. Families of prayer. And be expectant. That God is good, that his plan is perfect, that his spirit is all we need, and that he has shown us and given us his Holy Spirit, that there is absolutely nothing that he'll withhold from us that he believes is good and necessary. So here's the invitation this morning. First, can you call God Father? Can you call God Father? Have you been adopted into his family? Have you trusted Christ? Have you turned from your sin? Believed on, in Christ who's died on the cross for your sin and rose again? Have you trusted him? And secondly, believer, how might God be challenging you today to grow in your prayer life? There's one of these areas that's lacking, all four of these areas that's lacking. I know when we begin to struggle spiritually, the first thing that tends to wane is our prayer life. How might God might be calling you to grow, to mature in prayer this morning, to persevere in prayer? Let's pray.